We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Check 21. Everyone pays their taxes. It's that simple. It does seem deceptively simple, and yet it would be so great not to pay taxes. You know, famously, you have death and taxes are things you have to accept about life. And I just wonder, you know, there are places like Nevada, where the Hoover Dam sells electricity to... California, and that means that people in Nevada don't have to pay income tax. And then you have sovereign wealth funds like Norway or Saudi Arabia, which presumably alleviate tax burdens on citizens. So I just wonder, why do we need to pay our taxes? Gosh, there's a a long piece of history. I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. But in some respects, it's a way of saying there is a surplus to the economy, and this comes back to the notion of rent, that there are all these assets, I mean, not just rent in the housing and property sense, but rent in relation to every productive entity that there is. There's a surplus produced, and we take that surplus and we pool it for the common good to provide Mm. common services that are better provided collectively rather than individually. And I think few people would argue that we should just have no common services at all. You know, no infrastructure spend, health spend, school spend, welfare spend or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, it would be be pretty dreadful actually not to have decent public schools, have the NHS in the UK and of course having a decent road network. So tax obviously has a bad word. No one likes taxes. But if you look upon it as this collection of the surplus from the productive economy that then goes to the common good. I mean, at the moment, it's a pretty low bar in terms of surplus. I think you need you start paying tax at something like 11,000. If you tried to live on 11,000 a year in Britain, that would be a slight struggle, surely. There's a theory um, in HMRC, I think, the tax authority, that it's a good thing to get people used to paying taxes, even at a very low level, because then as they start to pay more tax and, you know, they earn more and so on, well, then they're used to it. I think that's a pile of nonsense, frankly. It does seem both paternalistic and slightly lacking in systems thinking. And lacking of understanding, as you say, of what it's like to live on 11,000 a year. So point one of our podcast is that you need to think very hard about where the tax starts to kick in. Yeah, exactly. 
So in an ideal world, at least, some entities, people, companies, maybe other institutions, people earning pay tax, people spending pay tax. So that's a question of who the, who the, who the everyone that pays their taxes is, is a question worth sort of holding as we go forward. And then the question of, obviously, well, tax positivity. I mean, I suppose what we're scratching at is that there are different ways of paying tax and different kinds of taxes. And we'll come back to that. But the context, as far as I can see for this principle, is precisely the point that not everyone pays their taxes. And indeed, there's a massive industry around tax planning, which a lot of people might construe as tax evasion. Yeah. This principle is aimed particularly not at most of us who do pay their taxes, but of those that wriggle and squirm and avoid in order not to pay their taxes. And that's particularly the more wealthy you are. It always struck me as rather strange that there you are, you're earning an awful lot of money and actually you put then a lot of effort into not paying tax, which is a bit odd. Well, it would be interesting to see how much people spend on avoiding tax as opposed to what they would spend on tax. You know, if you're a millionaire or a billionaire, it must be fairly eye-watering to watch the amount of money that goes to the HMRC that could go to something else. So I can kind of see why, if you had a lot of money, it would become a, a primary concern for you. And actually, the more clear place to look at this is with corporations. So there you are. Your job is, amongst others, to maximize profits, maximize shareholder value. We've talked about that in the past, how that job ought to be written much more broadly. But that's the job and that's the system as it is. And so they look at ways of minimizing their tax bill. And over the years, Really clever people have got more and more involved. So, you know, the tax experts at PwC that I worked alongside would come up with these extraordinary schemes where money is shifted from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, which has lower tax rates, but then all sorts of layers of companies in order to minimize taxes. It's all legal. It's what the people at the top are employed to do. They go off and do it. If they didn't do it... So there's uh, a question over the ethics, but in terms of doing the right thing as they are set up to do it, that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing the right thing. Once again, these are not bad people. They're operating in a bad system. The system Mm. requires them to minimise their tax bill. That's what they do. I'll just put some numbers on that. So we have 10% of global wealth is held in tax havens. So that means specifically for the purpose of tax avoidance. And it's an extraordinary number. So that amounts apparently to up to twenty trillion pounds globally and yeah. annually in the UK, according to uh, taxresearch.org, eighteen billion. So yeah. the total revenue in the UK is five hundred and fifty six billion per year. That eighteen billion is just over kind of three percent And it did strike me when I was looking at that, and I was thinking, well, you know, you mentioned that HS2 may rise to 90 billion. Mm. That's a one-off cost, and we're talking about 3% of annual revenues per year is quite a lot. How important is this? What would it buy? What change might it make if that revenue was employed? 
I think at the end of the day, it's about fairness and about equity. Let's say you're on the average income, 28,000 a year, something like that. You're paying your taxes and then you look over the fence at someone on 200,000 a year who's not paying their taxes or not paying all of them. You look at large companies. I mean, you know, we're surrounded by Amazons and Googles and all the rest of it. They're doing all of this business in the UK or it might be France or wherever it is, and they're hardly paying any tax. The people at the top, you know, we find, is it Bezos uh, worth $175 billion? It's no tax. And so there's something about fairness, indeed our personal motivation that says, well, look, if they're not paying their taxes, if they're ripping the country off, then why the hell should I be paying my taxes? And so if I can wriggle and squirm to get out of my taxes, then I will. There's fairness. The second point, those numbers, here's 18 billion. Well, I'm sure people listening could come up with all sorts of useful things that annually that money could go to. I think in terms of really nailing down the wealth extractors, in essence, Mm. the benefit would be much larger than that. Well, we're back to that worldview rack, in a sense, that you have the people at the communitarian end thinking, well, you know, we all use these services, it's fair that we pay for them. And the people at the neoliberal end who are thinking, well, you know, why should I do anything for anyone? My main aim is to preserve my wealth, which are both in their context, are both reasonable worldviews, but clearly not very practical from the point of view of creating trust in government and and running the... Trust and, and also, can society work on the basis of just rampant individualism that we'll all get away with whatever we can get away with and sod everyone else? The sort of out of sight, out of mind society that, you know, if I Mm. can't see it, then it doesn't matter. Well, society can't function on that basis. And I think this is another one of those fault lines, and we've covered so many of them in these podcasts, those fault lines which cumulatively brought us to where we are, Uh, widespread levels of dissatisfaction, outbreaks of horrible behaviour, rampant inequality, a planet being destroyed for human habitation. Mm. But then, you know, countering that, we have the recent G7 down in Cornwall, where they started talking about introducing global tax rates. Do you want to talk a bit about that and how that might be helpful? This is something we talked about in our book, that essentially what's happened over the years is that countries have competed to get industries and companies to locate in their countries by offering lower and lower tax rates. So Ireland is an example that has benefited considerably from this. But of course, as the whole thing plays out, then other countries then have to compete So other countries then lower their tax rates. And so you get this race to the bottom to where companies are paying no taxes at all. But also this came up in the finance course in Nicholas Shackson's book about how not only are these slightly wrong-headed states, but also countries competing on reducing tax, but they're starting to offer benefits. And the net benefit for the state has gone out the window. So it just becomes this completely wrong-headed idea that we must compete when actually competing does nothing for anybody apart from the tax advisors and the lawyers and all of those people who are managing the tax avoidance thing who of course they themselves can then come up with the credible threat 
well, if you put your taxes up, then I'm afraid you're going to lose, you know, this much Jobs. business and it's going to yeah. be awful. But so often that's complete and utter nonsense. It's like HSBC threatening periodically to move its headquarters out of London if the government in any way restricts the behaviour of banks and others in the city, including particularly their use of tax havens and indeed their money laundering activities. Mm. So finally, it seems, the G7 in this case, the seven biggest countries, have worked out that actually this is not a good idea, that in terms of sort of running even a modest scale of government, that this can't go on. And therefore, we're going to establish this global minimum corporation tax rate of 15%. And that's got to be good and sensible Mm. within the context of corporation tax. How successful they'll be against the armies of tax efficiency and planning experts, I don't know. How determined each country will be to make this stick, I don't know. But I think it's going to have to happen and it's going to have to stick. Let's just take a little detour from tax collection and and enforcement for a second into the uses of taxation because I noticed in the book you've got this straws law of derivative taxation yeah Um, the greater the distance between a pound collected and a pound spent the less effectively it'll be used now apart from it being modestly entitled in your own name I was sort of wondering to what extent is this measurable or is this more of an observation it's both because if I, here, in my local authority area, paid the full amount uh, for running that local government, then my council tax would be something like three times as high. Okay, so now my council tax bill, let's say for the sake of argument, it's it's two and a half thousand. It's then seven and a half thousand. My income taxes would be a lot lower, of course, to mm. compensate. But the point is that the pound that I'm sending to the local government would have an awful lot more of my attention at three mm. times the rate than it does now. I would pay a lot more attention to local elections. I would pay a lot more attention to lobbying councillors and the council. And so the way in which that money would be spent would be much more accountable and accountability means efficiency and effectiveness and getting good stuff done for the community in which you are. As it happens, what happens is that, for example, there's an airport tax. The airport tax goes into the Exchequer centrally in London that then is mixed with a pile of other taxes. At some point or other, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and others decide how much money they're going to shell out to local government uh, under this remarkably centralised system. That money then is shelled out, often disproportionately, to local government. It finally comes down to local government. And where's the connection between me Mm. or indeed someone else having paid an airport tax, and a service being delivered on the ground here. Well, it's pretty damn distant. And therefore, the pressure, the accountability, 
and indeed the responsibility that the council itself feels for the use of that money is just so distant. You know, money has arrived from London. It goes into a pot. What shall we spend it on? Oh, who are you? You're a local resident, are you? Well, I'm not terribly interested in you. Because I'm not accountable to you. How has that come about? It seems incredibly opaque. Mm. And I wonder who benefits from that and whether that opacity is deliberate. You know, what, like why would, why would someone create a system like that? It seems like yeah. they would create a system like that to get a lot of money. Well, we were talking earlier on about the 90 billion going into HS2. Well, that's, you know, it does sound like yeah. jobs for the boys. You know, there's yeah. you've got, got these yeah. multiple levels where people can cream off, as we were saying in, in another episode. Yeah. I mean, so the there, there seems to be a good, good reason for the opacity. And the, I'm wondering, in your experience, is that the way it works? Just step to one side for a minute, that in other countries, it is actually quite different. So in the UK, I think it is a pound is raised locally and charged locally for local services. In Germany, it's 16 pounds or the equivalent. Mm. So in other countries, there is far less centralised control of the money chain. Mm. What has happened in Britain is that over the years, it's become more and more centralised for reasons we've talked about. Whitehall and Westminster love this notion of being able to direct everything from the centre and get change from the centre without appreciating Ashby's law and many other parts of systems thinking that you just can't do it that way. So it then gives them control because if I'm saying to you in St Albans or to me in Gwyneth, right, we control most of your purse strings, most of the money you're going to get, then in effect, you know, how much local government is there or are these just institutions that are delivering a central government edicts and services and instructions? So, It's the whole centralisation trend, particularly acute in Britain and less so in many other countries. The second thing is on the opacity. It's exactly the same thing with tax havens and everything else. The more we can do in secrecy, the more we can take decisions based on our prejudices. We don't like Gwyneth. We do like St Albans or indeed the other way around. Actually, we're not going to win seats in Gwyneth. Um, so we well, won't This has happened recently, hasn't it, with the Johnson government, yeah. where they've basically yeah, funded yeah. the conservative mayors and not the non-conservative yeah. and, mayors. And it's absolutely gross and it's undemocratic, so you can do what you like. And the other point in terms of cronyism, in terms of preferential lobbying, the less the public can see as to what's going on, then the more easy it is to fiddle the books, essentially, and to act corruptly, to name it properly. This whole question of transparency is crucial. I was talking to a tax expert some time ago, one of my old colleagues at PwC, about the tax havens, and he said the first thing you need to do is to insist that all of the holdings in tax havens, in companies and then in terms of taxation, should be registered. They should be public. You should be able to see what's going on. And as soon as you get that transparency, you're starting to get some accountability in. Well, Uh, this is reminiscent uh, of Sweden, isn't it? In Sweden, all tax returns, I think, are public. So I could look at your tax return. You could look at my tax return. You could look at the tax return of the people at the top. 
and indeed the people at the bottom. And that in itself produces a degree of fairness and accountability simply by visibility. And it says, actually, there is an accountability between you and I as Mm. to what we're doing in terms of our taxes. And it says there is a wider accountability amongst us all and that that of itself will produce, yeah, a more collective, a fairer society. This, of course, is opposed by all of those people at the very top who, you know, don't want to go anywhere near any of this stuff that might make them accountable for what they do. Well, you can see why that would be unappealing to them. I suppose they would head off to some islands in the South Pacific. They all say that. We're all going to leave. The Russian oligarchs, they're all going to leave and they'll take their money with them and so on. To some extent, jolly good, because I'm not sure we need a society or a country that has those sorts of people in it. And I think we'd do better without them. And to some extent... Well, there's a point there in terms of when David Cameron was in power in the early 2010s, London property prices were propping up the entire economy and they were propped up by the money coming in from Russia and Saudi Arabia and so on. And I saw it remarked somewhere that... The UK was described as a handmaiden economy to these sort of yeah. high net worth and yeah. Russian and Saudi kind yeah. of oligarchs and so on. As a basis for an economy, I, I suppose it brought a lot of money in. Uh, yeah, sort of, because as soon as you look at the consequences of rising house prices and Russian oligarchs, Chinese and others buying up all of these new blocks at inflated prices, and then them simply sitting there as assets for them, often unused, Mm. you're simply contributing to the housing crisis. And I've never seen any numbers that actually say, yeah, this was a good deal. It's a mythology that Mm. somehow or other this money is propping up the country. Exactly. I mean, certainly when I worked in property in East London, there were people, you know, these nice people with good jobs who would say, well, look, we've tried to find somewhere anywhere near London so we can commute. And now we're looking for new jobs in Bristol and Manchester because we just can't afford to live near London. So that, I think, is a direct result of the prime property boom in central London. We were going to come back to talking about forms of taxation. You know, we pay income tax, we pay value-added tax, VAT. When these people buy houses, they pay stamp duty and indeed... One of the more leftist moves of the Theresa May government was to slap on, I think, was it 10% for properties worth over a million? And that certainly dampened house prices in the southeast of England. There's capital gains taxes that people get when they sell an asset. So we've got all these kinds of taxes. But then you were talking in the book about deadweight taxes. So I sort of feel like this is certain types of taxes that are somehow not helpful. But maybe you could... I mean, governments over the years, I mean, as they found the regular taxes, if you like, of income and corporation tax harder to collect, they've reached out and sought all sorts of different areas to tax. And so you'll find pretty much everything is taxed these days. And what we haven't done is stood back and say, well, look, what are we trying to do with tax? What is the purpose of tax to come back again? to a systems thinking concept. Hang on, why do we penalise people 
for going to work? Why do we penalise employers for employing people through income taxes and national insurance? Why do we penalise people for spending money when they go out and want to buy things? Is this a good idea? And Fred Harrison and the so-called Georgist economists have raised the question, which goes back to Adam Smith and his concept of the the, the single tax, Hmm. that if we were to tax simply on the basis of land and property, which would at the local level, I would be paying for my little patch of land, as it were. But I mean, the bigger your patch of land and the more valuable your patch of land going up to these vast estates in Scotland, for example, the more taxes you would be paying. And the more the value of those parcels of land went up because of public infrastructure going in, railway lines, roads or whatever it is, the more the value went up, then the more tax you would pay, which in essence is a way of saying, now you're paying for the publicly funded infrastructure. The reason that they call that and corporation tax and income tax, deadweight taxes, is because their calculations say that the economy is smaller as a result. And you can see it with employment. What should I do? Should I employ someone or should I go and buy an expensive piece of capital intensive machinery? Actually, if you go and buy intensively expensive uh, capital machinery, you get tax breaks on that, whereas you get a tax charge on employing someone. And so they depress the economy, they depress the output. And the argument is, and it's a pretty persuasive argument when you get into Fred Harrison's book, We Are Rent, the argument is that if we shifted that burden principally onto land and property, location value, then the economy would actually be a lot bigger than it is. And that was Adam Smith's view as well. It's analogous to the effect of saving. When people are saving a lot, there's less money flowing around. I mean, I think this is... Adam Smith, one of his original ideas was, you know, you had Robert Barron's essentially taking money from the populace and and spending it. And he was saying, well, actually, it's good for you and it's good for everybody if you reinvest that into your business interests. All of this then underpins what sort of society do you want? You know, do, do we want this society that we have of rent seekers, which in a way anyone who has assets is been enrolled in, including me, has Mm. been enrolled into the rent seeking and sits there and, oh, the value of my house has gone up, that's jolly good. Or do we want a society that says we're now going to go out and create wealth and some of that surplus is going to go into the common good? So it's quite a fundamental issue, this one about Mm. tax. It's much more than, oh, you know, do I pay a pound on income tax or do I pay a pound on land of property tax? I mean, on that point, when we were talking about your law of derivative taxation and the effectiveness of that pound, I was thinking about the story of the doctor's surgery in Somerset, where through compassionate communities, through general outreach, I think they saved 1.2 million in their local area on healthcare because the people that would have been drawing that money from healthcare were now more socially connected, healthier, and therefore not building up their liability to a hospital appointment by 
living unhealthily and, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. So presumably yeah. that will translate then into the need for tax. And the more closely connected that the tax is to what you're using it for, then the more people can go, oh, yeah, that's a good use of my money. Hmm. Um, so this is hypothecated taxes, and this notion has been around quite a long time. In this country, the health service is paid out of general taxation. It therefore competes with everything else that government spends on. If you said, now, actually, people, we're going to have an engaged debate, a proper piece of deliberation, and we're going to decide how much money we should spend on the health service, and that will appear separately on your tax return, and that money will be ring-fenced, and that money will go into the health service. In those countries that have national health services which are funded through insurance, and, and I'm not talking about America, I'm talking about the sort of mutual insurance that goes to fund the health service in Germany, for example, people can see very directly that they're paying this, and I should emphasise that what they pay is equalised in terms of the rich and the poor, people can see that that money is going directly to that health service. So that pound that I've paid has gone into there. Then connecting it through to the service side, are there ways in which we can reduce the costs of the health service? Oh, by the way, if I get involved in this compassionate communities thing or support compassionate communities in various ways, the costs of our health service are going to go down. My word, aren't I motivated to support mm. and promote that rather than being on the end of the centrally driven directives that come from the Department of Health, which inevitably miss the mark. Not only distant, but faintly authoritarian. And anything authoritarian is demotivating. And so it's like I get more and more distant from having any control over my life. Yeah, so that sort of holistic, systemic approach is where I think we need to get to. Which brings us very nicely to a point that relates to the entire series, at least for me, in terms of fitting this all within the context of the biosphere and of, and, and the climate emergency. Yeah. And of course, carbon yeah. taxation is a big part yeah. of that. How is that working, do you think? And where, where are we going with it? Who pays carbon taxes and well, well, who benefits? Like how, uh, all, how is it functioning? Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a muddle, inevitably. So you've got all this carbon trading, so-called. So, you know, here I am, I'm producing X amount of carbon dioxide as a business. If I go and buy a forest, which is judged to be sequestrating carbon, then I can use that to offset my pollution. As soon as you look at that, you say, oh, so what's changed? You know, has the biosphere noticed any improvement in terms of human behaviour in relation to all the crap we throw at it? Well, actually, the forest still exists. <laughs> the company is still polluting. It doesn't work. And, and all those mechanisms that they've come up with in terms of carbon offsetting and carbon trading are essentially a scam to make it look as though we're doing something. 
where you can have some impact is to say company X, company Y, and indeed that then knocks onto us consumers buying their products. You will pay the full cost of whatever you're producing. The full cost includes carbon taxes because it includes the cost of your pollution. And those pollutions can come in many forms, of course, some of it's CO2, but it also may be what you're doing to the watercourse in Chile in terms of extracting lithium, for example, and obliterating large areas of forest. You then clock up that cost onto the price, and so we're paying the full cost of a product, including to the biosphere, which in the long run is to us, and you're therefore producing different behavior. I mean, this is classically where conventional economists that treated the environment as an externality and said all of that is free. It doesn't matter what we throw at it, nor what we extract to it. I mean, they have gotten us to where we are today, amongst many other things in terms of the destruction of the planet. Yeah, so carbon taxes, again, it's very straightforward in the sense of saying, look, here is a real cost. You have incurred that. I have incurred that when I buy that product. Therefore, there will be a charge. So this brings us to the point where we're at the end of our mini series on governments. And we're getting to the next series of principles on businesses. So do you want to give a quick overview on businesses and maybe read out next week's principle? So hopefully we've now got government in order and now we need to get companies in order. You know, why are companies here? First point, you know, what's their purpose? We talk about end-to-end producer responsibility where anyone producing anything, any company or anyone else producing anything can't just go, oh, it's fine, we've just brought the raw materials in We're not interested at all in Mm. the impact of those raw materials on the people's lives there, the way we treat the workers, uh, the way we treat the planet. You are responsible for that. At the other end, you're completely responsible for recycling and the company duty to inform systemic inquiry. Well, this is, I mean, I I think I was ranting to you before about not just the packaging from companies like IKEA, which, you know, it's, there's just so much of it. But also, we had a meal box delivery recently. And their packaging is very good packaging. And I assumed that they would take it back. But no, we're chucking out each week, some very good quality packaging into the recycling. And I'm thinking, well, this could be reused, you know, so, yeah. um, so that's a great and, point. And, so why are companies here? Principle number 22, companies shall act in the interests of people and the biosphere.